The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Visiting with us this morning, a special welcome to you, and uh, it's great to have you with us. I want to introduce myself. I'm Jed Brown. I'm the associate pastor here, our senior pastor. Steve Clark is on vacation this week. Um, Lord willing, he will return soon. Um, It's great to have you with us. We've been looking through the Gospel of Luke um, the last few months. This week we're going to take, and next week we're going to take a break from the Gospel of Luke and look at a few crucial crucial issues in the life of every true believer. So this morning we're going to start with Psalm 142. So please turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 142. I'm going to read the psalm and then I'll pray. A mascal of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that we who have trusted in you, Lord Jesus, indeed have a kingdom, a kingdom that can never be shaken, that can never be destroyed, and we can never be snatched from your kingdom. You are a good king, and you are not an impotent king. You are a strong king. We thank you for that. We thank you, and we say that. I I say that, and I immediately, in the inner thoughts of my mind, want to pray and, and help me believe what I just said. I believe, help my unbelief. There are certain times in our lives when you, in your sovereign control, see fit to allow us to experience trouble, great, sometimes grave trouble, and we are tempted to think otherwise. We are tempted to question the strength of you, our king, or the solidity of your kingdom. We need grace. We need you to come, and I pray today that there I'm sure, uh, even with our smaller size this morning, because of this weekend, I'm sure that there are people here who are in the cave, that they can read this psalm and immediately identify with with what David is saying here, and and they right now are, are in need of great grace. They are in need of great deliverance from you right now, and I pray that you would come, Holy Spirit and speak with them and meet with them and do do a comforting a comforting exhorting sweet business with them today meet them right where they are at and for the rest of us I pray holy spirit that you would come and that you would implant the living word in our hearts that when we too find ourselves in the cave that we would have these blessed truths before us this morning to to call upon to feast upon, to, to, to live upon in these moments. I can think of times in my own life when 
all was dark, and it was your word, your living word, that was my very food during those seasons. Thank you for that. I pray that you would, you would prepare us and fill us with your spirit through your word, that we too may live upon it. So please help me now, help me to say the right things, and um, help us. Please, Holy Spirit, fill me, fill this people as I speak and as they listen, as we all contemplate you. Please come and meet with us. Please do a work here today. Do a work that is glorifying to you and is, is good for us, is truly good for us. I pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> well, welcome to Psalm 142. Welcome to the workshop of God. <clears throat> in this workshop, God is doing something that we are meant to watch, that we're meant to learn from. We come to a psalm like this, what we're really doing is apprenticing with Jesus. We're, we're sitting at his feet, watching him do his work. We're meant to watch and learn. Today we have something crucial to learn. Reading this psalm, we're given the privilege of learning from the master a trade. It's, it's a trade that is a mark of every true Christian. Every true Christian knows this trade. The trade of psalm making. Psalm making. I hope you will see today just how important it is for you and I to learn this trade, but first we need to see a little bit of the background to the psalm. The, the word psalm, by the, by the way, if you're, if you're new to the Bible, just means song. And sometimes the psalms are songs of praise, sometimes of pleading to God for help, sometimes a complaint to God, honest complaint. And often all three are present in the same psalm, song, complaint, pleading, and praise. Most of the Psalms were written by David, Israel's king, including this one. We read at the top that David wrote this while in a cave. It's a prayer prayed at perhaps the point of, of, of greatest stretching of David's faith, perhaps in his entire life, is this moment. David has at this point been anointed the next king of Israel. He's already killed Goliath, and then he entered into King Saul's service is King Saul's loyal assistant. But David's continued successes made King Saul very jealous, murderously jealous. So David had to flee. He flees to the wilderness, and he first runs to, um, well, you can read about all this in 1 Samuel 22 if you want later. But, but David has to flee to the wilderness, and he literally has nothing. No money, no weapons, no friends, nothing. He's first helped by a priest named Ahimelech, but he has to flee again, and so he goes to the Philistines at Gath, and that just proves to be totally awkward, and so he has to flee again, and this time he flees into the wilderness utterly alone. When he writes this psalm, he's hiding in the cave of Adullam, literally in a cave, hiding by himself. If we keep reading the story, we see that later his brothers and other soldiers and uh, assorted criminals and miscreants come to help him. That's later in the story. David doesn't know that yet. At this moment, David asks God, verse 4, to look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. The right hand is where you would find your trusted friend, the person who looked out for you, the person who had your best interest in mind. He wanted to protect you. And there was no one. David was alone. So we can all relate to this, I suppose, in our own way, but especially um, if you've ever ended up in the hospital or had a loved one end up in the hospital, I think you can especially relate to what David is feeling here, what, what this experience is like. Um, You've been anointed king, you've beheaded the giant, you've, you've gained the king's favor, life is moving along swimmingly. And then, crash, you find yourself in a bed, alone in a cave, hooked up to beeping machines. God has pressed the pause button, or, or is it the stop button? That's a question, right? 
Is this pause or stop? What, what is this? Life is now on hold and you feel alone. There were real enemies chasing David. That's bad enough. The cancer, the rival at work, the loss of work, the bitter rage of a spouse. These are all real enemies. And they are hard. Um, and yet, what really stretches our faith to the limit is facing these enemies alone. It's been said that we rejoice together and we grieve alone, and that's, that's true. Nothing tests our sanity like facing a fearful enemy alone. And yet, the Psalms are not included in the Bible just to, just to help our sanity in times of difficulty. They do this, but not just this. Something deeper is going on here. At this moment, when everything and everyone was gone, and when he was alone in the cave, David shows his true colors. The true allegiance of his heart was revealed. Fearful trials have a way of doing this. This is the deeper point, that God is after our hearts, and He will settle for nothing less than deep allegiance to Him. Now, why is that? Well, first off, He's King, He's God, He's your Creator. That's, you know, He can do that. <laughs> but, but something else is happening here. Well, he also expects this. He wants this. He will stop at nothing to get it because He is a bountiful, generous God who aims to give us everything that would satisfy our souls. So he demands our allegiance for our infinite good, that we would gain infinite good. <clears throat> he demands our allegiance for the sake of our good and his glory in giving that good. So this leads us to the big point today, the big point from this psalm. True allegiance to God is expressed in trouble by crying out to him for his sovereign deliverance leading to ultimate reward. I'll read this again. True allegiance to God is expressed in trouble by crying out, and hear the emphasis in my voice, to him for his sovereign deliverance leading to ultimate reward. Whatever, whatever true colors are coming out of you in your trial, the psalm pictures for us what allegiance to God looks like when we're alone in the cave. It's the path we all need to go down. We need to learn from the master this trade of psalm making, not only for our sanity in the cave, although this does speak to that, but for the deep satisfaction of our souls. So I'm going to unpack this big point today. The first lesson we learn in this, this trade of psalm making, the first lesson in this workshop is this. Cry out to God, not to yourself or the things around you. Cry out to God, not to yourself or to the things around you. The first two verses are pure poetic parallel, parallelism. It's a hard word to say. Um, the first line says something, and then the second line tells you the same thing, but with a bit more definition. This happens all the time in the Psalms. If you start to look for it, you see it everywhere. David cries out to God with his voice. He pleads for mercy. He pours out his complaint before him. What does he mean by complaint? It simply means, it's not, not complaining the way a you know, petulant child you know, complains about not getting their way. It, it's complaint in that he's simply telling God his troubles being honest with God about his troubles. And the point here, the deeper point, is simple and utterly crucial. This is one of the great questions that you and I face in all of life. When faced with fearful enemies, to whom or to what do we turn? When faced with fearful enemies, to whom or to what do we cry out? Is it to ourselves? To the things around us? Or to God. This was Israel's great sin in, in their time in the wilderness. God used the wandering and the waiting and the hunger and the thirst to reveal their true allegiance. Again, trials have a way of doing this. It was revealed by who and what they cried out to in the wilderness, to idols, to sex and drink, to surrounding nations, to grumbling and complaining to each other, longing to go back to Egypt. 
anything but God. And as you, as you read on in the Old Testament, you see that this problem, this great sin, didn't go away. Um, this one great sin is pictured most vividly in the book of Hosea, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The book is about spiritual adultery. But where Hosea really lands the point is here when he says, Woe to them, for they have, or God says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. How? They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. This is the question. Will we cry out to God or to our beds? (laughs) One of the great questions of life. Will we tell God our deepest troubles and be honest to Him about how we feel about it, or will we tell digital strangers? Who will it be? This is the choice we all face. Will we cry out to God or to our beds? And this question is so important because it reveals who is our effective Savior. Not who we say is Savior in church or in Sunday school, but who is our effective, real-time, real-life Savior. Who or what is it for you? Just for a second, you know, from right here, we can kind of reach over and touch just very briefly on the subject of addictions. Addictions are fundamentally about deliverance, about escape about getting life where the death of boredom or disappointment reigns. So we cry out to a screen or a drink or a pill to get deliverance. They don't give what God can give, but, but it, there's insanity within us. And insanely, we, we keep giving our allegiance to these false saviors, even though the last 72 times we did it, they just left us more stained and more tired and guilty and exhausted deeper in the cave, not anywhere close to being out of the cave. But addictions point us to something that's true in all of us. The way out of addictions is not just stopping it. Something deeper is going on. Something deeper is going on for all of us. When we find ourselves in the cave, the cave will reveal replacements for God in our hearts. So what we need then is a a deep-hearted turn of allegiance to God. What we need then, when we see this come out of us in the cave, what we need to do is simply and humbly turn to Him as our Savior, as our Deliverer, and humble childlike trust. That's the first step. The first step is not rejiggering your computer or, or, or putting away the, the, the drink. Those are all good things. But the first step is a humble turning to Him for deliverance as your Savior, not turning within yourself or to others. Kind of time I've, I've, I've had deep, deep times of, I, th- I think, I don't know if at the time I would have said depression, but I, there have been a few times when I think, yeah, my wife would say, yeah, that, no, 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 Jed, that was depression. <laughs> and you know, I, th- I think in those times that I'm thinking of right now that it was caused because I was not turning to God. God was not my Savior. I was. And I was crying out to myself. And, and then I looked at myself and realized I can't save myself. <laughs> that I, I'm, a, I'm a poor Savior for myself. And that's depressing. And so in a way, I should have been depressed <laughs> by what I was thinking about. Because I was crying on my bed, not to the Savior. <clears throat> so the first step of this, of this humble turning, is to cry out to Him, telling Him your troubles. Telling Him your troubles is the same thing as saying, You're my Savior, not me, not all those alter- alternatives. You're my Savior. So because of that, I'm going to tell you my troubles. Will you cry out to God or will you cry out to your bed? It's the question we all face. And as we keep listening to David, we hear why, why his allegiance rests on God. This is the second lesson we learn here in the, this workshop in the trade of psalm making. Cry to God because he knows your way. Cry out to God because he knows your way. I get this from verse 3. 
David says, when my spirit, spirit faints within me, when I am stretched to the very brink of physical, mental, and spiritual strength, when I ain't got anything left, you know my way. What does this mean? Well, again, note the parallelism. God knows the hidden traps laid for David out there outside the cave. David does not know them. He cannot see them. He knows they're there, but he, he doesn't know them. But God does. God does. God's omniscient. He sees everything. He sees all the traps laid for you in life. All the traps laid for you by the enemies that you face. So David takes this simple truth and he mixes it with his complaint. David had no one at his right hand. The, the right hand, again, was the place of a wingman, someone who has your back, who protects you. And he had no one. And yet, God is omniscient. You know my way. I'm going to mix that in with, with my complaint. God is omniscient. God is sovereign. And the sense here is not a, not a cold, distant, all-knowing control. But the sense is a fatherly closeness. God is close and God knows. God is close and nothing spins outside of his control. So as I said, this is why I think many of us spin right here at this point. This is where we spin in cycles of depression and sin and addiction. Yes, your situation is bad. Yes, what happened is shameful and it does hurt. And yes, I can see how you wish, you so wish you could have that one back. And yet, if, if only, and I, and I'm, I want to try to say this with the appropriate, if I can use, if sarcasm has a place in the pulpit, I want to say this with just the right amount of loving sarcasm here, okay? If only, if only there was a God who was so sovereign that he was in control of everything, then I wouldn't have to burn myself out trying to control everything myself. If only there was a sovereign God who knows even more than the doctor who can see into the cancer cells, who knows exactly what's going on. If only there was such a being who existed. If only there was a God who was really omniscient and omniscient for me. If only such a God existed. Then I wouldn't be so exhausted with anxiety trying to be omniscient myself. Do you try to be omniscient? Do you try to do God's job for him? It's exhausting, isn't it? Because you're not. <laughs> you're not God. You're not omniscient. He is. If only such a God existed that we could really cry out to and tell him all of our hurts, all of our fears, then I wouldn't be so frustrated and disappointed that others don't seem to understand or care. Oh, if only such a God existed. If only there was a sovereign God who's actually been here in my cave who knows what this is like. If only God were not so far away in his sovereignty and his omniscience, but could come close and really live like a man like me and feel what it's like to be shut up in a dark cave with a stone rolled over its mouth, utterly alone, with no one at his right side, completely in need of God to raise him up out of that cave. If only such a God existed. If only God would do such a thing. Many of us spin right here. That's effectively how we think. And yet such a God does exist. Such a God has done this. Such a God knows your way. Jesus knows your way. And Jesus knows your way. Jesus knows. He's been in the cave in need of salvation of God just like you. He knows your way. He knows it and knowing means that he owns it. He owns your way. I want to say, if you are in the cave because of you, because you have done it, it's your fault. Um, God owns that too. God, God knows your way yet still. He's that sovereign. He's sovereign over you, even over your sin. He's that big. He's that sovereign. I think part of, part of sitting under the fact that he knows your way is letting him be omniscient and letting him be sovereign even over the stuff that you have done. Let him own it. Let him own it. Whatever your cave is like, Jesus knows your way. 
And Jesus knows your way as one who's been there. So draw near to His throne of grace and you will find mercy. You will find His grace to help you. He knows your need. So this truth gives David the faith he needs to honestly cry out to God. And in verse 4, he cries out and then I, I, I suspect that he hears himself. Have you ever done this where you're praying and then you, you say something to God and then you say, hmm, I think that's quite right. <laughs> I just said that to the creator, God, sovereign of the universe. Um, I need to backtrack a little bit. I think David hears himself speak in verse 4 when he says, no refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Did I just say that to God? And then I suspect he remembers who he's saying these words to. And so David cries out again to God, verse 5, and says, You are my refuge, my portion, my portion in the land of the living. David corrects himself. No, I, I do have a refuge. It's God himself. You are my portion. The pronoun changes from I to you. Portion means my share, my reward, my great treasure. Portion also almost always implies that it is given, that it is a gift by someone else. David's reminding himself, not only are you my portion, but you have made, that's because of your initiative. That's because of your divine moving in, in my life. That actually didn't start with me. That started with you, oh God. The subtle, almost like David is reminding God of that in this moment. So this leads us to the third point, the third lesson in this learning this trade of psalm making. And it's a crucial one. Remember that God himself is your portion, not what he does for you. Remember that God himself is your portion, not what he does for you. The point here is subtle but profound and convicting to me and perhaps to you. David is essentially saying, I, I haven't mixed up what my reward really is, what would truly make me happy and satisfy my soul. It is you. It is you yourself, O Lord. And this doesn't mean that David pretends as though his immediate fears and enemies are, are meaningless, far from it. But his greatest good is not God solving his problems. His greatest good is God himself. Now, it is impossible to separate the character and the deeds of God. But we kind of do this all the time, I think. We love what God does for us, but not the God who does it. And it may be because, to relate it to the previous point, we think we know our own way. We own our own way. Thank you. We we love God for answering our prayers when they are answered according to our knowledge and our omniscience. But uh, that's not what David's doing here. Perhaps you've never really entrusted all the, all the fearful unknowns of your life to God, to a God who really knows them. Perhaps you've entrusted yourself to the deeds of God, to the deeds that, that you know you, you know he should do, but, but not all the unknowns. You've never entrusted all the beautiful all, all the unknowns to God's beautiful character and His wisdom. Well, you must. You must. Because until you do, you will never truly be able to cry out to Him and entrust Him with all of the unknowns. If you can only trust Him with the known, you will have no recourse, no refuge in the unknowns. And there is a deeper problem yet still. If God Himself is not our portion, then our prayers will always tend towards idolatry. When we love God only for His changing our circumstances, what we really love most, what we treasure supremely, is the change in our circumstances, not Him. God is just our means to the end we really love. Our prayers to God are really for Him to give us what is our effective God. So this is where I'm most convicted by this psalm. And I, as I think about how I've prayed this way, I, oh boy, how often I've prayed, you know, really for God simply to change my circumstances, for God to feed my God. If I'm really honest, 
Perhaps you too. So often I need God. I desire God only to solve my problems. I desire the change in the circumstance really effectively more than I desire God. I know this from listening to my own prayers as I think about them. But I also know this um, as I think about my relationships. Because when I'm relating to God this way, when you are relating to God this way, undoubtedly you are relating to other people this way. Treating them and relating to them only for how they enhance or detract from your, the, the goodness of, of your life. The circumstances of your life. So what do we do with this? What? Well, my first step has been and yours must be not to do anything but be honest with God about it. To remember who you're talking to and, and painful as it is, tell him what you have valued more than him. Say it to him. Say it out loud. Ask him for forgiveness. And then ask him to fill you with his spirit that you would see him for what he is that he would give you new eyes to see what true treasure really is, what real good really is. Which is another way of saying, show us Christ. Spirit, come, show me Christ. Take me to Calvary. Show me the refuge I have from my sin and what he did for me on the cross. Show me Christ. Holy Spirit, bring me to the empty tomb. Show me that, that this refuge, this Savior, really has beaten death for me. Show me that. Let that sink in yet again. Show me what a beautiful, awesome refuge He really is. Show me Christ. Show me goodness. Show me what good really is. Show me Christ. And as the Spirit gives us new eyes to see Christ, we will begin to see God as He truly is as he truly is, the lover of our souls. As I said, the, the word portion always carries with it the sense of being a gift. And, it, and it, so, so it has this emphasis of the, the, the initiative of the giver. That it was, it was God's choice that he would take Israel, or take Israel into the promised land and, and, and divide up the promised land and give each tribe a portion of the promised land. He did that out of his grace, not because Israel was great, the biggest, or the strongest, but because he wanted to, because he loved Israel. Why did he love Israel? Because he loved Israel. The word portion always has sitting in it this sense of God's loving initiative. He is your portion because he has loved you. When we see Christ on the cross, when we see the empty tomb, we realize, we see more deeply the divine initiative of the lover of our souls. So when we pray out to the Spirit, give me new eyes, we're praying, show me Christ. Show me what a lover you have been to me, O oh God. Show me this yet again. Show me the, the violent love that you have had for me, that you would go to the cross for me, that you would endure the infinite solitude of the cross and that dreadful tomb for me. And as we do this, as the Spirit shows us this, we will find our hearts won over to Him again. This becomes more than just theology. We will find our hearts won over to the lover of our souls yet again. We find our hearts being filled again with allegiance to Him. Not the cold allegiance of a dictator and a subject, but the natural, thankful, love-filled allegiance of the heart to its lover. Christian, you have a lover of your soul. And that lover is out to fill and satisfy your soul only with what would truly satisfy it with himself. He designed your soul this way and he will stop at absolutely nothing to accomplish this. To bring you to himself. He does it because he is the lover of your soul. The Bible continually describes God's love as steadfast. Steadfast. That means that no circumstance, no situation, no enemy on earth can ever break through that love. Nothing can thwart this lover from getting to his beloved you. This means then that my greatest good is God himself. 
your greatest good is God himself. It is his love that opens my eyes to really see him this way. And as I see his love most clearly, um, when I sit in the cave, I, I, I see it when I sit at the foot of the cross. When you are in the cave, the way that you see this love is by sitting at the foot of the cross. By reminding yourself of the gospel. Now, I don't mean to say that the gospel is some kind of magical incantation that changes you. It's the Spirit working through the gospel that does this, that gives us new eyes, that reminds our hearts again of God's love. And as the Spirit works, God really does become little by little the thing that my heart and your heart really does desire, really does desire above all things more than anything else in the world, more than children, more than the love of a spouse, more than sex or food or wealth. Little by little, the Spirit changes me by the sight of Christ to see what true treasure really is. And true treasure is found in the face of God, in seeing the face of God. So then it will only be found when we finally fall asleep for the last time and then wake up and see His face. That's when true satisfaction will be found by you and I, by our hearts. Only then. Then and only then will our souls be truly satisfied. David prays this way at the end of Psalm 17. I'll read just a few verses. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, still, still thinking about enemies. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. Verse 14, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. And they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Where is your portion? May the Spirit so move in us that we can say when we are in the cave, it is you, O Lord. May the Spirit so move in us and do this miracle that we would value Him, that we would see Him as our portion. Not even, not even children. Not even the basis of needs in this world, but we would see Him as our portion. And only the Spirit can do that. Only the Spirit can do that through the Gospel. You can't gin this up. It's a miracle of the Spirit. And He does this. But we do not see His face yet. And we are human. And we are vulnerable. The fearful enemies are still there, still laying their traps. They're real. This is no exercise. This leads us to the final lesson in this craft of psalm making. The fourth lesson is this. Cry out to Him for full, bountiful deliverance. Cry out to Him for full, bountiful deliverance. C.S. Lewis once pointed out that our problem is that our desires are too small. We settle for too little. We come to the end of this psalm and we see that David has no such problem. He asks, asks for God to attend to his cries. He asks for deliverance from his enemies, and he asks to be sprung from the prison. He asks for a complete reversal of his situation. Now, uh, it's at this point that we probably should be a little uncomfortable, a little uncertain as to how do we apply this to our situation, to our present troubles. Does God really care for the details of my life in the same way that he cared for David and his life? Like, can I, how do I enter into this psalm in my cave in my troubles. But we begin by considering who we really are in this psalm, who, who we map over to. And I want to say right off the bat, it's not exactly David. It's not exactly who we map over to. Remember that King David is a picture of the greater King David to come, King Jesus. And so even though David came before Christ, we we see how David here is really echoing the prayers and the experience of Christ. Jesus, too, had his cave. 
killed on the cross for our sins. He bled and died and was placed in a tomb in a dark cave, utterly alone, cleft from the rock. And there he lay in need of deliverance by God to raise him up. Jesus himself would have confidently prayed this psalm, including the last line. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. So what and when is he talking about if Jesus is praying this? He's looking forward to that final day when he will return on the clouds and we will be raised up with him and we who have been made righteous in his righteousness will surround him. God will deal bountifully. God the Father will deal bountifully with God the Son by bringing all of us and surrounding all of us to Him on that day. I think that's the picture that Jesus has in His mind as He's, as he's saying, you will deal bountifully with me. I know you. I know because, because of who you are and because of how you desire to bless me, you will deal bountifully with me and you will do it in this way. God's supreme goal for all time and eternity is to glorify himself by dealing bountifully with his son. And the way he deals bountifully with his son is by saving us and by bringing us to that day to surround him with the righteous. That's how God is glorifying himself. That's how God is being, dealing bountifully with his son, with his king David. God is so completely committed to bringing you to that day because he is so completely committed to dealing bountifully with his son. Absolutely nothing can supersede this supreme desire of the father to deal with his son in this way. And you and I are completely involved. By faith in Christ, you and I are assured of being there on that day, of being the righteous who surround him and who are Christ's reward. And he will be our reward on that day. So, what does that mean then for our trials, for our cave, for the fearful enemies that, face, that, that we face? What does it mean for us? What does it mean today? How do I enter into this psalm? It means that you and I have every reason to confidently cry out to him about the fearful, the specific fearful enemies that you face today. Because he knows that we are but dust, he knows that we are full of weakness, and he knows our fainting hearts, but he is completely committed, completely committed to using everything that we experience, every detail that we face, and sovereignly ordering it to bring us to that day. He will stop at nothing to do that, out of love to you and out of love to his beloved son. He knows your way, and he is using it for your infinite, infinite good. And he knows our enemies. He knows the traps of the devil, the world, and our own flesh. They may rough us up. They may even kill us. But if they destroy our faith and they have taken from us our eternal treasure, God. God knows this. He knows our way. And he will cause even, even their traps to be used for our good to secure and build up our faith. So he is in every detail, every moment. He owns for you, for your infinite good, every detail, every moment of your life. His grace is everywhere because he is everywhere, sovereignly delivering us to that day. And he is using everything that you face to deliver you to that day. So because he is so, so committed to blessing his son, you can rest assured that he is intimately committed to sovereignly ordering the details, the threats, the enemies, the traps laid for you in your life today. You might say he, he, he is more committed to it than even you are to, to your own deliverance. He wants it even more than you do. And he will do it. He will do it. So we may and we should cry out to him today for deliverance today. We should call out to him to attend to us, to attend to our specific troubles. And when we cry out for deliverance from our troubles, we need to cry out like David. 
We need to cry out like David, asking for the moon. Not, not settling for, for just the change of this circumstance or this circumstance, but we need to pray for a deliverance where He is seen to be our deliverer, that we might give thanks to His name. A deliverance where it is clear that God has done it, not me, not you. For God clearly is Savior. So this means a deliverance where He is clearly shown to be stronger, stronger than me and stronger than my enemies. This is how we must cry out to Him. And a deliverance that would bring us, bring us one step closer to that day when our, our true reward, our true treasure will, will come to us. So Lord, use these circumstances, use these, these traps, turn them, order them, so that it would bring me one step closer to true reward, true satisfaction of my soul. And then we wait and we ask for we ask for his deliverance and we wait and we we watch for his deliverance. We can be assured of release from our release from our prison. It may come through a change in our circumstances or it may come by releasing us from our bodies and bringing us to himself face to face. But either way this crying out to him and and waiting on him for his deliverance. This, this is what allegiance to God in the cave looks like. This is what it looks like. And I, I want to end with this, that as you wait for his deliverance, watch for his grace. Watch for his grace. Because if he's everywhere, if he's in the details, if he's in every detail, that means his grace is everywhere. So watch for it. Watch for it. I think of that dark day on Calvary when Jesus hung on the cross and the Father has turned his face away from the Son, leaving him to receive all of the Father's wrath for us on Himself. And there He hung, utterly alone. The religious leaders passed by, mocking Him. Even one of the criminals railed at Him, Luke tells us. He had friends and family there, but the cross was His to suffer alone. He was alone. For Jesus, the man, the moments before He died would be the most terrible suffering and solitude that any human being has ever experienced. And yet, even on that dark hill, in those cruel moments, the Spirit provided grace. There was grace, even there. Jesus was there to save us. It was for His own joy that He endured the cross to gain us. And so, just before just before his most agonizing moments, the Spirit provided grace by providing a soul. The other criminal. The soldiers mocked Jesus by giving him gall, but the Spirit gave him cold water by letting him hear those words from the other criminal. Remember me in your kingdom. Remember me in your kingdom. Even on that dark hill, the Spirit provided needed grace, a, a, a taste for Jesus of, of that future joy that he would experience on that day when all of the righteous would surround him. All of the righteous, when he would have his reward surround him. Even on that darkest hill, the Spirit, I believe, was giving him the grace he needed to endure the darkest moments that would follow. Grace is everywhere. Because the Spirit is at work. The Spirit is on the move. Grace is everywhere because God is sovereignly at work to bring you the ultimate satisfaction of your soul. He is your reward, your portion, Christian. So cry out to Him. Cry out to Him. You will find Him to be a satisfying Savior. And you will love, you will love His salvation. You will love it. So cry out to Him. Let Him be your deliverer. Let him be your Savior. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, what a, what a blessed, strong, ever-present, omniscient, and sovereign Savior you are. I thank you that you are using every situation, every moment to keep delivering us, to keep saving us till that blessed day when our souls are completely satisfied. So I pray, would you please, Holy Spirit, move in us to cry out to God for God to be the one that we actually cry out to. For God to be the real effective Savior of this church. Not ourselves and not the designs, not the, not the things that we can do with our minds or our hands, but that you, the living God, the God who is there, that you would be our Savior. That you would be our Deliverer. So as we... As we ponder these things, and, and I suppose if, as, as some of us here right now think about situations in our life and we, we cry out to you, I pray that you would give us grace to see you as our portion, as our great reward, as our treasure. And I pray that you would move amongst us, that you would so move in our circumstances that you would get the glory, that you would get all of the praise for, for the change, for the difference. That you would get glory by being the one who is seen to be strong. That you would be seen to, to be the one who is, who is strong and who is able and who is sovereign and who is great and who is filled with love for your people. Please move for these reasons. Please move among us in the particular circumstances, in the sickness in the job fears, in the marital strife and difficulty, and in the smaller things, the things that we face every day that are still enemies to our soul, that still seek to rob us of faith, please move in them. Please be seen as our Savior, as our Deliverer, for your great glory and for our infinite good. I pray this in your blessed and wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.